It's the spring of 1971. The place is Macon, Illinois, a town of 1,200 surrounded by cornfields in the middle of the state. The Macon High baseball team, known as the Ironmen, is warming up for a game. Blasting from their bench is their favorite music. Imagine a high school baseball team in 1971 rocking out to Jesus Christ Superstar. Imagine their coach, a long-haired hippie type who believes in the inalienable right of his ballplayers to be teenagers, to grow and learn and make mistakes to value love, dignity, and tolerance, a coach in the mold of the man from Nazareth. These are your 1971 Macon High Ironmen. I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had a plan. No, why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? you come today, you could have reached the heart. Welcome to Championship Stories, a podcast about champions triumphant. I'm your host, Steve Morantz. You won't read about the Macon Ironmen in any of the standard histories of baseball. They don't register alongside Babe Ruth or Jackie Robinson or Roberto Clemente or any of the great World Series champions. But the story of the 71 Ironmen is told beautifully in a book called One Shot at Forever, published in 2012. A longtime writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Ballard is the author. And the, the theme of the book was this idea that a lot of us who had any kind of athletic experience in high school, you might have like one or two moments during that time that you end up talking about years later. These sort of the ability to transcend the, the small world you're in. And to me, that's what this felt like with this team, these players. This was, you know, your... You're 15, 16, 17 years old, and so early in your life, and you have this this one opportunity to do something that was historic, and you know that someone like me would write a book about 30 years later. I think that's what was fascinating was the both what that experience is like in the moment for them, and then the ripple effects afterwards of uh, like you know brushing up against immortality. Ballard's book was inspired by an email from a man who grew up in Macon, Illinois in the 1970s. The man recounted his memory of the 71 Ironmen and sparked a curiosity in Ballard. He set out to find the coach, Lynn Sweet, and the players on that team. What Ballard found was a classic David and Goliath story. In that era, all of the high schools in Illinois, about 700 total, competed in the same state tournament. Macon, with 250 boys and girls total, went up against the Chicago school with 5,200 boys. It was a time when a high school team was closely linked to the identity of its community, an era before elite AAU and traveling teams stole the thunder from high school sports. But this isn't just a baseball story. 
It's also about the youth, counterculture, and anti-war movements that shook America in the 1960s. My mind is clearer now. The changing times find their way to rural Macon in the persona of Lynn Sweet. Sweet is hired to teach English at Macon High in 1965. At 24, Sweet comes from Chicago to a sleepy town with one bank, two grocery stores, two barber shops, a post office, and three taverns. The conservative folk of Macon regard Sweet with suspicion, with his bachelor lifestyle, leftist politics, and agnosticism. He doesn't attend church. Sweet's teaching methods are unconventional. He seats students at round tables rather than separate desks. He allows students the freedom to select their own reading list. The books he does assign, such as Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, are considered radical. Sweet grows his hair long, adds a Fu Manchu mustache, and clashes with the authoritarian principle of Macon High. The city council and the locals don't like him because he's from Chicago and he's got long hair and he's a hippie and he has these liberal teaching ideas and, you know, he wants to, to teach Aldous Huxley and he listens to music and drives a motorcycle and he, he's not using this authoritarian approach for the kids. You know, he doesn't yell them. This was a time the school actually, the teachers had paddles on the wall to paddle kids for, for corporal punishment. Um, and in comes this, this teacher and coach who tries to get them into literature, uh, who empowers them and has them take control of their own lives. And as you can imagine, there was a pushback in town. From the man you will see where we all soon will be. Jesus! But Sweet is friendly and sociable and gradually he and Macon learn to coexist. In 1970, he marries a local girl and settles down in a new 70-foot trailer. Sweet is asked to coach Macon's baseball team, and he agrees. As a coach, he is the anti-Vince Lombardi. He rejects strict rules and harsh discipline, and occasionally allows his players to run their own practices. He breaks from a rigid gender code, and recruits a girl to be the team's scorekeeper. Sweet's first team in 1970 wins its conference, but is knocked from the playoffs by an administrative technicality. Chris Ballard reads from his book. When it came to the baseball team, Sweet saw no reason why he couldn't carry over his educational philosophy. So whereas many coaches might have responded to the unexpected success of the 1970 team by creating expectations and tightening the reins by creating a program, Sweet did the opposite. He continued to let the boys run practice on occasion, encouraged them to make their own decisions in the field, and introduced elements such as, quote, silent infield. Before certain games, he'd signal the boys, and as one, they'd stop talking. No chatter, no joking, no calling out bases. The only sound was the crack of the bat and the thwap of ball meeting leather. Sweet saw it as akin to a moment of meditation prior to the game. While the stillness could be unsettling to fans and opponents, the Ironman players came to revel in it was one more thing that forged unity that set them apart. Indeed, theirs was a remarkable transformation. Two years earlier, they'd been a bunch of country boys. Now, as Dale Otta says, by the day, they became, quote, more and more like Sweet. When the 71 season rolls around, Sweet counts 14 players. All 14 buy into his philosophy. 
They grow their hair long, like sweet, but it's more than that. The Make and Ironman become a team in the truest sense of the word, a team of complementary parts. They are the sons of tough WW2 and Korean War veterans, sons of farmers, railroad and factory workers, salesmen, and a milkman. Second baseman Mark Miller, catcher Dean Otta, and his brother, shortstop Dale Otta. Center fielder Stu Arnold, first baseman Jeff Glan, left fielder Dave Wells, Steve Schartzer and John Hanaberry alternate as pitchers and third baseman. In right field is Brian Snitker, a sophomore who would go on to a career in baseball and eventually manage the Atlanta Braves. These boys have grown up together. Now they chase girls together, drink beer together, share their hopes and fears together. Some of them go to the same church where a charismatic priest introduces them to the music of Jesus Christ Superstar. At first, Scherzer loaded up the box with Santana. Then one day, Hanneberry and Snicker were at the church and their priest, a man known as Father Rick, introduced the class to a soundtrack called Jesus Christ Superstar. Around town, Rick was known as the cool pastor, and in Jesus Christ Superstar, he saw an opportunity to reach the kids through music. Snicker and Hanneberry noticed one thing immediately. That music was catchy. Soon enough, they'd hooked their teammates. As Scharzer puts it, quote, if you took the words out, the damn music was great. He bought the album on 8-track, and from that day forward, his was the only tape the team used. The scene during making warm-ups of boys fielding grounders while singing about riding in Jerusalem, about being, quote, obsessed with fighting times and fates you can't deny, was made all the more surreal by the boys' hats, a number of which were embroidered with large white peace signs. Lynn Sweet's team is one for all and all for one. In the spring of 71, the Ironmen easily win their conference. The playoffs start and they go on a roll. Each opponent is from a larger school. Schools two, three, and four times the size of Macon High. Each opponent goes down. Mount Zion, Blue Mound, Decatur Eisenhower, Mount Pulaski, Potomac, in the sectional finals, they played Bloomington High, a school of 1,200 students, as many as the entire town of Macon. Bloomington goes down just the same. The Ironmen are playing lights out, and their secret, says Chris Ballard. I think it was the belief in themselves, right? Uh, to have a coach who was also a mentor and a friend who kept telling them, not only, you know, you're capable of this, but downplaying how big a deal it was. They didn't recognize even in the moments that they were ascending through the playoffs and suddenly all the newspapers want to talk to them. Um, because their coach pretended to never take it that seriously, it allowed them to stay calm and in the moment. Rather than a, you know, I think today there's a lot of uh, how can you out-strategize the other team? How can you out-prepare the other team? This would be closer to sort of that, you know, uh, flow state. How do you get your team into a flow state where they, they play effortlessly as a team together? Now Macon is in the final eight, and the Ironmen head to Peoria for the state tournament. By now, the statewide media is on to a good story. 
Reporters crowd Lynn Sweet, who imparts his Zen coaching philosophy. Sweet tells them, quote, If the kids want long hair, I let them grow it. We're a team of individuals, and I don't, I don't see that we have to look alike. I don't see what long hair has to do with playing baseball anyway. What about fundamentals, asks the reporter. Sweet replies, quote, We don't emphasize fundamentals. We just let them have fun. There really is not much I could tell them. They've all played a lot of baseball and know the game as well as I do. Another reporter asks Sweet about his practices. Sweet replies, quote, If there are six or seven kids who don't want to practice, we call it off. It isn't that the kids are lazy or anything, but somebody might have to go to the dentist, or somebody's pigs might be out. So we'll go chase pigs. So the state tournament gets underway in Peoria, and just about everybody from Macon shows up. They cheer crazily as the Ironmen beat Nashville in the quarterfinals, 5-zip. Then the Ironmen go up against vaunted Lane Tech of Chicago in the semifinals. Lane Tech has 5,200 male students and a trophy case almost as large as Macon. Once again, the Macon Ironmen prevail by a 6-4 margin. Now they're in the state final. Their opponent, Waukegan, is from a suburb of 80,000 just north of Chicago. And here's the thing about this championship story. It doesn't end the way we want it to. Tiny Macon High loses in the final to Waukegan 4-2. But here's another thing about this championship story. Winning isn't everything, not in Lynn Sweet's worldview, and in the end, not in the hearts of the good people of Macon, Illinois. Holding aloft their second place trophy, the Ironmen returned to Macon with memories to last a lifetime. The bus rolled into town past the Arrowhead Tavern in the Grain Elevator, rumbling by churches and homes, then finally came to a stop in front of Macon High. Since it was close to 11 p.m., many of the players expected to go to bed. Instead, they were directed to the school auditorium on the double. There, waiting in the thick summer heat, were the rest of their classmates. Senior graduation had been set for 8 p.m. Perhaps the most formal event in Macon, it included a processional, an invocation, a clarinet solo, and a presentation of awards. Pre- and post-graduation parties were planned at the houses of parents around the town. When word came that the team would be arriving late, some of the parents had urged the school to get on with it. The senior class, however, had voted to wait. So for three hours on a humid 90-degree day in a gym without air conditioning, dozens of boys and girls, many of whom had rushed back from Peoria to shower and change, waited in their finest. And when the Ironmen finally burst in the gym just after 11 p.m. with robes thrown on over the uniforms and cleats still on their feet, there was a roar that could be heard for miles across 51 and out past all those cornfields. The five seniors on the team tore down the aisle, carrying Sweet on their shoulders as he hoisted the second-place trophy for all to see. To the graduating seniors who watched, some of whom would never see Sweet again, it looked like he was riding a wave of joy toward the stage. So that's how they remember him now, thrust up in glory, smiling that wild smile, a man carried into light by a bunch of boys. Try not to get worried, try not to turn on to problems that upset you. Storybook ending. 
Except for one thing, the story doesn't end. Coach Lynn Sweet and his players go on with their lives. And when Chris Ballard finds them in 2010, their one shot at forever has 40 years of history. In 210, most of the 71 Ironmen look back with nostalgia and pride at what they accomplished. But Steve Schartzer was different. Schartzer was the star of the 71 Ironmen, both as a pitcher and a hitter. It was Schartzer who pitched the final game against Waukegan. That defeat was Schartzer's personal cross, which he carried until his death in September of 2020. So Steve Schartzer, who was the star player on this team, ends up feeling like he loses the championship for them. He's injured at the time, and, but he doesn't perform to his expectations. And he carries this with him the rest of his life, like literally the rest of his life. And it affects his, his life in ways, and he does not want to see his teammates again. He feels like he let down both the team and the town. And, you know, I think anyone from the outside would say, well, you, you guys got all the way to the state title as this tiny school. Like, that had never been done before. And you're focusing just on the final game and, and one or two plays, right? I don't know many people who, who took things on their shoulders that hard in ways where he really did feel this was on him, like the whole town, you know, if he went back that the guy at the deli would, would, would sort of feel slighted in some way. He was, he was just, he had a lot of passion and emotion. It was how he processed the world. And then there was Lynn Sweet. Sweet coached a few more seasons. His teams were good but he never got close to another state championship. In 1976, Sweet gave up coaching, he said, because parents were too pushy, too fixated on trophies and scholarships. Sweet raised two daughters, taught until 1996, then retired to a 25-acre homestead outside of Macon that he turned into an animal refuge. He's with his wife, and, and they're on this just uh, pastoral, beautiful plot of land, and you know, you can walk around, there's butterflies out in his back, and, uh, and he's very much at peace. And I, one of the things I thought was so, so interesting to see was, you know, a lot of people, especially if they're not accustomed to media and publicity, you know, when a story is written about them, and in case there was, you know, film interest, and there's lawyers, and there's people, and there's all, all that kind of stuff that comes with it. And Lynn never got starstruck, never got sucked into any of it. He managed to maintain that same equilibrium throughout it that had served him so well as a teacher and a coach. Special thanks to author Chris Ballard. The unsung champion of this story is Ballard's book, One Shot at Forever, which won the Young Adult Alex Award for 2012. Thanks for listening to Championship Stories. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms, and if you do, please leave a rating. I'm your host, Steve Morantz, and I'll be back with another episode of Championship Stories. I guess the, the log line would, would be uh, Hoosiers for baseball, but they lose at the end. Um, that would probably be it. <laughs>